Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Suzanne Bluntsom. Today we're looking at Europe, where uncertainty over Brexit and the threat of global trade wars has overshadowed a corporate success story. Martin Arnold discusses how European companies have bounced back since the financial crisis with Sarah Gordon, our business editor, Harriet Agnew in Paris, Olaf Storbeck in Frankfurt and Michael Stottard in Madrid. Sarah, this week in the Financial Times, we've been running a series about Europe's corporate comeback since the financial crisis. What was the starting point for the series? Well, the starting point was really a series of conversations and reporting that I did with European chief execs and business people in general. And I felt that certainly in the paper and in general, a lot of political noise was obscuring the fact that much of corporate Europe was performing incredibly well, had bounced back very, very strongly from the financial crisis and that there was a really important regional story to tell. It's very easy, particularly if you watch the news or indeed write the news as we do, to think that the main things going on at the moment are the prospects of an imminent global trade war because of Trump's imposition of tariffs on China or Britain leaving the EU and how badly wrong that could go, or the rise to power of a rather unstable populist coalition in Italy. But I think that political noise has obscured what's really going on in the ground in terms of company performance. How did you find that the response to the financial crisis has shaped the fortunes of many of the companies in the region? Well, I suppose the bottom line is that If you survived the financial crisis and there were record levels of bankruptcies, you became fitter and leaner as a result of it. And of course, the financial crisis was incredibly painful, particularly for countries like Spain and Greece. But to survive, companies really had to adapt to a new reality. And that was a new reality where their relationship with their funders had to be far more professional, far more based on business plans. You had a tradition in much of Southern Europe in particular, a very cosy relationship between companies and their local banks, not much challenge put to company management. After the financial crisis, companies really had to turn their gaze outside Europe. They really had to look for the new growth opportunities, particularly as some of the domestic economies of Europe were absolutely ravaged by the crisis. And what that meant is that if you manage to survive, you tend to be more active outside Europe than within it. You will have added several markets in places like the Middle East or in Latin America for those Spanish companies. And you also have a more solid and robust source of funding. 2017 was the year, in a sense, when this all flourished. You know, you had record profitability and domestic demand, which was the one missing component from the good corporate story, domestic demand really recovering. So now the question is, what do they now need to make that growth model really sustainable for the future and to maintain Europe's competitiveness, crucially, against the rest of the world? One of the pieces focuses on Germany, which you've written, Olaf. Germany being the powerhouse of Europe, particularly its small and medium-sized companies, the so-called Mittelstand. And you spoke to several Mittelstand manufacturers and visited them. Can you tell us what you found out about their priorities? Yes. The theme which came up in talking to every company was that those companies really take the long-term view You're talking about unlisted, family-owned companies, which quite often have been around for several generations. So, for instance, I I visited Klaus Fischer, who runs Fischerwerke in a small town south of Stuttgart. It's the company which basically invented plastic wall plugs 
almost 50 years ago. Klaus Fischer is 77 years old and I asked him, what is driving you? And he told me, well, I inherited this company from my father and my duty is to keep it going and to secure its long-term future. And did you find the Mittelstand to be as thriving as it's often portrayed to be? Yes, obviously they can't decouple themselves from the global economic cycle. Many of them have export ratios of 70 to 90 percent, which means nine in 10 products they sell abroad, which obviously if there's a recession triggered by Brexit or by a global trade war, those companies would be hit. But the way how they deal business and how they would deal with any crisis is, I think, one of the key differences to these Anglo-Saxon capital market-driven approach to capitalism. So I visited Trumpf, for instance, which is a machine tool maker, also close to Stuttgart, and they came through the financial crisis of uh, 10 years ago without laying off any single worker. And they told me in any kind of future crisis, this would also be the owning family's key objective to basically not having to fire anyone. And a year ago, they started to form a crisis team, which is meeting regularly and thinking about how the next economic crisis could look like. And this crisis committee started to work in a year which turned out to be the best financial year in the company's 95 years of history. So they are really trying to look ahead and brace for potential downturns. Apart from this long-term outlook, what is the secret source of the Mittelstand's success? One key ingredient is a real obsession with the products these companies make. So quite often they are really looking at market niches. The CEO of Delo, which is a specialized glue maker, she told me that they are looking for product niches which are too small for the really big giants in the industry, but also big enough for them to be successful and a real obsession to make the best product. I actually struggled to get to talk to some executives of smaller Mittelstand companies because they don't have a press department. Quite often, the switchboard wouldn't put you through to the assistant of the CEO because those guys aren't really interested in broader publicity. They deal with their clients and focus on their product, and this is all they care about. Another kind of key ingredient is financial independence. So these companies tend to have very little debt and really try to not having bankers to tell them what they have to do. And a very good relationship to workers is another key ingredient. Klaus Fischer told me his goal is to basically turn his workers into entrepreneurs who then come up with the best ideas usually because they are the ones who really know the product and the production techniques and what's wrong on the factory workflow actually. That's fascinating. Thanks, Olaf. Switching now to the luxury goods sector, Harriet, you cover some of the big French luxury goods companies. What do you attribute their success to? The big luxury houses have seen a remarkable comeback since the financial crisis. And really the powerhouses in this space are European. So there's the two big conglomerates in France, LVMH and Caring, and then also Hermes, which is based in France. Really, they've been fueled by Chinese shoppers, especially Chinese millennials. And more and more, they're buying at home in Asia as well as on their travels to Europe. I think what's changed more recently is that where in the past there was indiscriminate gains across the luxury industry, now we're seeing a much greater polarisation between winners and losers. So really the brands that have adapted their digital strategies and reinvented their store formats are pulling away from some of their rivals who've been less quick to adapt. Within the big groups, you have many different boutiques 
And certainly this has allowed a lot of the brands to grow because they let them have their own creative independence, but then they back them up with all the other things that they can sort of consolidate at group level, which proves quite helpful. And how do you see any threats emerging to that success? At the moment, there's some macroeconomic concerns overshadowing the luxury sector. Not only is there a prospect of a global trade war, particularly between US and China, but also last week when LVMH, which is the leader in the sector and the sort of bellwether that everyone looks to, when LVMH reported its results, it said that Chinese authorities are stepping up border checks on travellers for undeclared items that are picked up in cities like Paris and London. So we've seen a massive sell-off in the sector in the past week or so, really on these investor fears that demand from the all-important Chinese consumer might be cooling off. Well, that is definitely something to watch. Thank you, Harriet. Switching now to Spain, there's been a very strong recovery, including in construction and infrastructure companies, which before the crisis were very focused on their domestic market. And they've managed to survive and in some cases even prosper since then. Michael, tell us about that. Well, the short answer is that many of them didn't survive. A huge number went bankrupt. But for those that did, they survived by either being the very best in class in terms of quality and costs, or more frequently by focusing very heavily on the export market. And with the Spanish infrastructure groups, which are now some of the biggest in the world, they very much weathered the storm by becoming extremely competitive internationally. And many of the smaller manufacturers did the same. One Spanish SME said to me a few months ago that they had a simple motto during the crisis, which was export or die. Harriet, you looked at one of the biggest challenges that European companies are now facing, which is an inability to recruit the staff that they need. Tell us what you found out going out to visit some of these companies in France. Well, we have this paradoxical situation in France where, on the one hand, unemployment is at over 9%, that's among the highest in Europe. Yet if you speak to any mid-sized company, they'll tell you that their main difficulty is hiring. The finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, said the other day that the question of skills is the most important economic issue in France today. And he said that the system of learning in France is not providing the skills that are needed. So as we see this tentative economic revival in France, there's a worry that one thing that could put a break on this is difficulties in hiring. I went to a town called Cholet, which is near Nantes in the west of France, and I went to see a factory there by a company called Boyer-le-Rue, which is the leading French manufacturer of terracotta building materials. And I spoke to the boss there who said that it's difficult at the moment to hire both skilled and unskilled workers. And he said that last summer they had to increase their delivery time because there was a dearth of maintenance workers for its production sites. And he made the point that maintenance activities are not skewed to one industry. So there's a competition for maintenance workers across industries. If I could jump in there, I mean, one of the things that is typical of the whole of Europe and not just of France is this issue of a skills mismatch. We now have a much higher skills mismatch in Europe than we do in the US and in Asia. So the specific skills that employers are now seeking are in very short supply. So that's obviously particularly high in things like AI and software engineering. But it's actually across the board. It's in engineers, for example, as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the situation in France is that, yeah, there's a skills imbalance between supply and demand. 
And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's a sort of quite a generous welfare system for unemployed people that doesn't always motivate them to look for a job. And there's also a lack of adequate housing where many of the jobs are located. Seen from abroad, the French economy seems to be on an upward trajectory, Harriet. But what do you hear from French companies that you meet about what they need to keep the momentum in this comeback? Well, I think France is in this slightly tricky situation at the moment where 18 months into Macron's presidency, some of the sheen is wearing off a little bit. And clearly he's pushed through a lot more reforms than his predecessors, notably to free up the labour market. But... We're waiting to see the economic impact of these reforms trickle down into people's everyday lives. When you look at the skills shortage in particular, I mean, Macron's put overhauling France's system of professional training at the centre of his reform agenda. But I think while a number of initiatives have been put in place, you can't whisk up skills overnight. And it will require a strong dialogue between the company's professional education and higher education. Olaf, this question of talent, is that the biggest challenge faced by Germany's Mittelstand? And what are the other issues that you think could hinder their further growth? Yeah, the lack of talent or the increasing difficulty of recruiting high-skilled workers is definitely one of the key obstacles for many companies, especially in Bavaria and Baden-Württemberg. These South German economic powerhouses where in, in many areas you have full employment. For instance, at Trumpf, if you're a Trumpf employee and you recommend somebody else who will be hired by them, you get a 1,000 euro bonus at the moment. And these companies, while they are paying high wages, also compete with companies like Porsche and Daimler, so really consumer brand companies, which quite often are seen as a more attractive employer by young people and graduates. Another more structural challenge for German companies is digitalization, because Traditionally, the Mittelstand is really strong in mechanical engineering and related areas, while software and IT isn't necessarily the traditional key strength of German Mittelstand companies. But this isn't necessarily the case for every company. One example of a German Mittelstand company which is really successful in IT and software-related areas is BrainLab. It's a Munich-based health tech company which makes software to visualize neuro and spine surgeries for doctors. They told me that they looked at the question, should we move part of our R&D to places like India or maybe the Silicon Valley? But they always came to the conclusion that it makes much more sense for them to keep it in Munich, where wages are competitive and living costs are relative to the Silicon Valley rather affordable. Yeah, I mean, that sort of flies in the face of this idea that robots are replacing humans, particularly in engineering manufacturing companies. Interesting stuff, Olaf. Thank you very much. That was Martin Arnold talking to Sarah Gordon, Harriet Arnold, Olaf Storbeck and Michael Stottard. You can find a link to our series on Europe's corporate comeback in our show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another news feature tomorrow. In the meantime, look out for our brand new news headline show called FT News Briefing which you can find on all the usual podcast platforms and at ft.com slash podcasts. 